Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Made only a few years after Carrie Mae Weems received her MFA in 1984 from the University of California, San Diego, Kitchen Table series consists of 20 staged photographs depicting Weems and others seated at a table. Endowed with a keen sense of how to transform her body into an expressive tool, Weems used the photographs to tell the story of a woman's life as seen through the intimate space of the kitchen, the traditional sphere of women and a site of sanctuary, creation, shared experiences, and emotional honesty. In this performance, held on February 6, 2018, in conjunction with the installation of Kitchen Table Series in the East Building of the National Gallery of Art, Weems presents this seminal body of work in the context of her career, including images from Grace Notes, Reflections for Now, performed recently at the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. This program is made possible by the James D. and Catherine K. Steele Fund for Photography. The one thing that I, I know is that as we go through the course of our lives, we actually have fewer and fewer and fewer friends. And um, I keep thinking about who we are and what we are at this sort of amazing time, this incredible time in our, our history, uh, the meaning of this time in our history. And, uh, and I can't go further without, you know, sort of thinking about what time means and how time seems to be speeding up speeding up on us all. And uh, uh, the, but one of the things that I, I, I love doing and, and one of the things that I cannot stop myself from doing is considering other artists. And so I start almost every day sort of thinking about, you know, the time that I have, the time that I have, and that's something that's been with my little crazy, you know, esoteric echo, uh, self for a long time. I'm a, you know, I'm an existentialist. You know, I've been like, you know, nuts for a long time. <laughs> you know, but starting, you know, starting my day sort of thinking about like times and the limits of time and what I'm doing in the process of time and who I'm looking at in the process of living. Looking at other artists, thinking about other artists, contemplating other artists, considering what they do, what they make, how they make, what they make is one of the greatest things that I do is one of the, 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 the best ways I can possibly spend my time. I can't always make it to a museum or to a gallery or to a show, but I can always open a book. I can always open my computer and I can always consider the ways and the many ways that art impresses itself upon me. This extraordinary thing, this extraordinary um, gift that humanity has offered to humanity, the creative utterance of our being. Some of these things that I'm showing you are simply things that I think about, artists that I spend time with, whether it's, you know, Fellini or, uh, you know, Cindy Sherman or somebody like Toni Morrison, who I absolutely read on my knees, you know, or this great book that I read while I was moving around Prague, you know, or reading Alice Walker or Tolstoy. I can remember reading again Toni Morrison, and I literally did, I, I would read her on my knees. I, I would read passages that were so exquisite, so, so beautiful, that spoke to me so profoundly that the only thing I could do was drop to my knees and say, right, girl. 
right? You know, the, you know that thing when you, 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 know, you encounter something and you said, that's exactly the way I felt. That's exactly what I wanted to say, but I couldn't say it. And then you look, read somebody like Toni Morrison, you know, or Coetzee, and, and they say it exactly the way you felt it. Or they show you exactly the way you felt it. I've had so many people come to me over the years to say, kitchen table is me. Kitchen table is my mother. Kitchen table is my father. Kitchen table is my aunt. That's had this sort of amazing, amazing possibility. <clears throat> and we'll talk a little bit more about kitchen table as we get to it. I thought so much about theater and the role of theater and performance, even though I didn't think that I was really interested in performance. And so I read lots of plays, and I see lots of theater, and I read lots of text. I don't watch as many movies as I thought that I would. But I know that we're all influenced by something, whether we're writers or choreographers, curators or historians, musicians, or just everyday people living everyday lives. We are always influenced by others. We're influenced by what comes before, and we also have the possibility of influencing. I keep thinking about and asking myself, and I ask you, you know, what are you committed to? What drives you? What drives the work? What drives your meaning? What drives your purpose? For all the artists, who are the artists out here in the room? Who are the artists? Show of hands. The artists out here, many of you are artists out here in the room, right? So, there is, so, so that you know, right? You understand these ideas about influence. And I've been doing recently this talk about the nature of influence. I've been having a great time with it, actually. And I thought about presenting it to you today, but I won't. Maybe another time, Sarah, I'll come back. You know, like, like I've, loved, I've loved Nina Simone since I was a young girl. I, I was a young girl. I think I was maybe 13 or 14 when I was introduced to Nina Simone. And so I, I was introduced to, to her by a friend, uh, Don Washington, who appears in Kitchen Table, who happened to be a wonderful dancer, even as a young man. He was really brilliant, and you knew that he was going to be one of the ones. And he introduced me to Nina Simone because we were putting together a talent show. We were doing a talent show at our school, and, and, and the song was, I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. At 13, that's what we were looking, listening to, right? And this woman opened up, this woman opened up, a, a, like she opened up hearing that song, opened up an incredible sense of possibility for me to live in. Listening and learning Zora opened up an enormous possibility for me to be in. I wouldn't be an artist without Nina, and I would not be an artist without, uh, without Zora Neale Hurston. Right? I wouldn't be the kind of artist that I am without Zora Neale Hurston and that influence. I wouldn't be the kind of artist I am without the influence of somebody like Roy D. Carava or you know, Marcel Duchamp or Michael uh, uh, Michel Basquiat, or the extraordinary David Hammond, his hood. This is like the hood. 
This is like one of those things I would get really angry. It's like, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> I mean, it's like a really brilliant, brilliant, brilliant piece. Right. And so I keep coming back to these kinds of artists, this idea about essays on influence, about ways to build, ways to guide, ways to deal with the work. This piece by Martin Purrier, his great ladder, I call it the Jacob's Ladder. It's been in my head for years and years and years since the very first time I saw it at, the, um, at MoMA. It was one of those sort of extraordinary exhibitions where everybody was walking around. I don't know if, if people here saw it. Right? People were like, you know, th th people were moving through the, through the gallery as though they were in a daze. They could not believe what they were seeing. And it was one of those exhibitions where even the guards, they would walk over to me and they would say, did you see that piece over there? Right? The everyday, even the everyday people were transformed. And so I'm looking and I'm eating and I'm learning and I'm struggling and I'm crying trying to figure out how to be, how to be an artist, how, trying to figure out how to make, trying to figure out how to express, trying to figure out ways of bringing my audience closest to me so that we can engage in some sort of a, a dialogue. Often people, they used to ask me, well, who are you speaking to? Who are you speaking to? All of you young artists, curators, art historians, we're always dealing with this question, who are you speaking to? And I say, anybody interested in having a conversation? Anybody interested in engaging in the conversation, that's who I'm speaking to. When I saw these quilts by Loretta Pitway from G's Ben, I knew that I had to kiss her hand. I knew that I had to say, thank you, sister. So I got my behind in the car and drove around until I found Loretta Pitway in her little home on Little Island in G's Bend. And when I walked into her house and I said, I came to kiss your hand, sister, she said, girl, you crazy. <laughs> And there's sort of, you know, this way in which artists, artists, the creatives, the creative forces that are in the room, creative in all kinds of ways, our bodies are our guide, right? You can feel it instinctively, you know, that your body is telling you to do all kinds of things that your mind might not want you to do that your mind can't even negotiate for you because we're deeply intuitive, right? And the way in which we feel things happens all through us. And so there are amazing artists that have been doing this for a long time, really using themselves and using their bodies, their skin, as a way of negotiating their deep meaning in their lives. Whether we're talking about, you know, uh, Felix Gonzalez Torres, who I miss terribly, you know, or, or, or Anna Mendiata, who I miss terribly, killed, died in the most tragic way. Or Adrian Piper, who used to paint herself black and then walk down the streets of Boston trying to rub up against other white people. <laughs> Fabulous work, bold, daring, right? Or Eleanor Anton, who decided to change herself black and see what that felt like to live in black skin, in a black body. 
for a period of time? How would the world respond or would she come to know about blackness and herself in the process of these makings? I mean, artists have done like really amazing things using themselves, using their bodies and using their skin. Now, the ways in which the black body, of course, had been articulated and dealt with, negotiated for a long time has been problematic, to say the least. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to share just quickly a story with you on the, uh, this, this is uh, Cartier Brousson, two famous photographers and Marc Rabault. Marc Rabault was married to the beautiful, you know, fantastic, extraordinary sculpturist, Barbara Chase Rabault. Barbara Chase Rabault. For those of you who don't know Barbara Chase, you should go find out. <laughs> Fabulous sculpture, lives in Paris. Live with Marc. Every morning, Every morning, Sarah, every morning, Cartier-Bresson called Barbara's house for Mark. Every morning, every morning, Barbara answered and she passed the phone to her husband, to Mark. Barbara's this fine assistant, right? And neither of these two photographers, whom she knew for over 20 years, ever photographed her. This is deep. This is deep stuff. So finally, Barbara, who bought, brought to us, for those of you who don't know, not only is she a sculpture, she also brought to us Sally Hemings. She's the first artist, first writer, first historian, first essayist to write the profound work about the relationship of Sally Hemings and Jefferson. The reason that we started investigating Sally Hemings was because of the work that Barbara Chase Robot did. Right? Now, this is very interesting. So she needed a photograph taken for her book jacket. And finally, one morning, Mark was on the way out of the house to go on assignment. And she turns to him and she said, I need a photograph of my book jacket. I need a photograph, Mark. He came back inside. He took one photograph and he passed her the role. So even in that context, the ways in which the black subject has been realized, negotiated, disregarded, disrespected, maligned, even showed up in her marriage and it was something that she was willing to share with us, even though this is, of course, one of Mark's most famous pictures, his sort of delicate way of dealing with the war outside of his house during the May Day demonstrations in Paris, but it was not something that he could bring home. This is Barbara. Barbara Chase Rabu with some of her great sculptures in the background. MoMA has just acquired one. Philadelphia Museum has just acquired one. A whole group of museums right now in the last six months, literally, have just acquired major Barbara Chase Rabu sculptures. But the reality of her life, living with some of the most extraordinary men in the field are, as image makers, has not happened. This idea of the artist's influence and how artists have used influence across a myriad range of circumstances and situations, whether we're looking at somebody like Cindy Sherman. This mining of the territory, a mining of the territory of history, of art history. Artists come back to it again and again and again. 
Who are you influenced by? What are you trying to do, right? And when you appropriate, why are you appropriating? Why are you taking from somebody else and where are you taking it to, right? Fabulous piece by Lorna Simpson next to this wonderful piece by Duchamp, right? A wonderful, wonderful play, right? You know, 50 years later. This, of course, we've used a thousand times. A thousand painters have photographed the Odalis, right? They come back to it again and again and again and again as a way of finding and mining something about female objectivity and subjectivity as well. It's both, and that's why I think we keep coming back to it in such a profound way. I was interested, however, in the black subject in the back and how to foreground ideas of that black flower girl. On the other hand, somebody might, like Micheline Thomas might handle it in this way. Right? Understood? Okay, good. Because I think it's really fascinating. I think it's really important the ways in which we use painting, use history in order to inscribe, in order to deal with ourselves, and in order to negotiate ideas about what the body is, what the body does, how it responds to the world, and what happens to it in the world combination of both, right? And certainly if we sort of think about the moment in which we find ourselves with what's happening with the skin and the bodies of young women and the violations of young women, I think is really, of course, really important. This amazing Cobera picture and another way in which another famous artists appropriate one another even earlier, right? Again, in the sort of looking at the body Right? The origins of the world. Great, great, great painting. Right? And then coming around to somebody like Duchamp, one of my favorite pieces that I go to see at the Philadelphia Museum all the time because I just, I have to deal with this thing. You know, it's this sort of desecration of the female form. Right? That's what happens to the origins of the world. She's desecrated in some form or another. And then I inscribed that piece and made another piece my piece. So it's been really interesting, uh, all of this work, how we work, how we think about the body, how we negotiate black subjects, how we negotiate identities and genders and politics, right, and how we work. Of course, I do many, many different kinds of projects because, you know, because I don't sleep well anyway. <laughs> so I might as well be up working. I have my own little organization, it's called Social Studies, where I train young uh, people in the arts, and it's been really great. Sometimes, even though I'm not really crazy about kids, <laughs> but I continue, to, I continue to work with them. You know, I'm not crazy about them, but I care about them. I mean, you know, it's like the contradiction. You know, the idea of being like responsible for your own community was really important. And so how to do that, how to do that as an artist with my little two nickels. I do it with my, my two nickels, you know, rubbed together, trying to figure out ways of working with these young people. And I've been doing it now for five years. And I started as the Institute of Sound and Style. It's been really fabulous. And I thought, how do you talk to kids? Well, they're interested in fashion, they're interested in music. That's the first thing that you do. So it's been a wonderful project. You know, if anybody's interested, I'm taking 20s, 30s, and $40 bills, if you happen to have any. <laughs> 
And it's been really a labor of love. I mean, I didn't think that I was going to enjoy this project that much, but I've actually loved it in this way of sort of giving back and of working with people. It's been, and working with kids, it's been really kind of wonderful and important to me. And I didn't know how much I would be fed by it. I knew that I was going to be helping these young people, but I didn't know to what extent they were going to be helping me in return. Right? That idea of, you know, giving, it's when you receive the most. It really is a great gift to give. And learning how to do that has been absolutely important. I spent a lot of time, of course, thinking about uh, what's going on with our young black men, nature of incarceration, histories that we've had to negotiate and how to make this work, and how to make this work read, and how to play in it, I think, in a really complex way, from a piece called Profile. This idea, you know, there's a long history of being profiled, and so I thought that it might be really important to experience it, to play with it, to think about it, to build a whole set of works around it. And I'll show you a piece um, just a little later that sort of really sort of targets in a little bit more. You know, the thing, you know, again, I sort of find really interesting about work uh, and, and this is becoming truer and truer and truer as I go through the process, that I've been working around similar subjects for years. I didn't start something like last week that I didn't also start 40 years ago. I've been thinking about the same issues, sort of issues around social justice for years. I started my life thinking about issues of social justice. So everything that I've done has really been based on that. So even though I made this piece, you know, commemorating every black man who lives to see age 21, commemorating every black man who lives to see age 21, I made this piece maybe 25 years ago, maybe 25 years ago, maybe 30. Right? So it's been around for a really long time. And so coming back to these ideas of thinking about um, the relationship of young black boys to the state um, is something that I continue to do and probably will continue to do for a really long time because the issues are primarily the same. Right? The ways in which you know, the body is dealt with, the, way, the questions around race, questions around gender, even as they change, remain very much the same. Even though they change, they remain very much the same. I also do lots of convenings with other artists uh, because, uh, again, I like doing this kind of work. And, and I'm very interested not only in the work that I make, but I'm also interested in the context in which the work is being made and who is around me. What are they doing? What does that work look like? So I've just finished a major convening at the Park Avenue Armory called Histories of Violence. So I've been mining this idea of histories of violence for, for years, for years. Right? Even within the kitchen table series, we are also mining the histories of violence. At one point, the husband takes her outside and turns her upside down out of a seven-story window and says, talk shit now. Right? 
right? And so, and so these ideas are, are, are ongoing. They're ongoing because I'm really ultimately interested in the sort of the questions of power, no matter where they are articulated. Now, doing this piece was really wonderful, and I did this as a, as a young woman. I did kitchen table as a, as, as a young woman. I did kitchen table, well, I was 30. I was about 30 years old. And, uh, and I was working. I was working at, uh, at Hampshire. It's a really beautiful little private school up in New England, and I enjoyed it very much. And one of my very good girlfriends, Vanessa Gamble, is here today, who was also teaching there at the same time. I'm hoping that she'll come down a little later. She's one of the only people in the room who actually sat at this table many, many, many nights. Many, many nights over wine and collard greens and you know, that kind of thing. The people that I used in the piece were people that I knew, people that lived in my neighborhood. I used myself primarily not because I was particularly interested in me, but because I was around and I could work whenever I wanted. I could work late at night, I could work early in the morning, which I did. It was a very, very sort of intense period of, of working and trying to understand. It was sort of this sort of breakthrough. It was a real breakthrough moment. And one of the things that I was very, very aware of was that we were in this sort of moment <clears throat> where uh, Laura Mulvey, for those of you who are interested in sort of critical theory, in feminist theory, Laura Mulvey had did her seminal text, very, very, very important. And there was a lot of text being written about, you know, these sort of positions around feminism, identities around women, etc. And I was teaching at that time. All of my students, what I remember most about all of my female students in particular, was that all of them, whenever they were photographed, they were always sort of photographed like this. Right? Like where, where, where they were always sort of half revealed, right? And they were always either hiding behind their hair or hiding behind something. They were never square to the camera. All of my male students were always squared to the camera and always looking directly at the camera. And so in part, you know, I also realized that the, the sort of material that I was reading, pieces like Laura Mulvey's work, as much as I appreciated it, um, did not necessarily have space for African-American women or for brown women or for women of color. That our, our, our position, our historical position, our cultural position, our social position, and how that position had been imposed in some ways on these bodies was not really a part of her sort of critique, which was not her problem, but it was simply true. And so in part, making the kitchen table in this way, I was not only sort of interested in what was going on in relationship to feminist theory and critical theory, right, and, and, and sort of the, those sort of incredible texts that were dominating uh, cultural debate at that time, I was also really interested in um, presenting for, for both myself and for my students another way of making another way in which the female subject could be made, another way that she could be engaged, right, in the sort of, in, in, in the construction of self. It was really a fascinating project. 
uh, and um, one that I learned a great deal from. And so a part of, you know, the, the, the responsibility to myself as an artist to, to, to do is to, to pay attention to the work, to pay attention to what the work is teaching me about who I am, because your work, in fact, teaches you about who you are, if you're paying attention to it, and to get out of the way of the work so that the work can actually do its work. I mean, for instance, kitchen table really doesn't belong to me anymore. I simply made it. I was the conduit for it, but it actually belongs to those people who engage it, right? Do you understand what I mean, right? You know, yes, in some copyright legal way, it belongs to me, but it's much bigger than I am. And the same thing I think is true with, uh, with uh, for instance, from here I saw what happened and I cried. This is the man, uh, Don Washington, uh, sitting to my left, who uh, introduced me to Nina Simone many, many years ago, and miraculously uh, was my neighbor when I moved to this tiny little town in New England. He was living next door and became then my subject uh, in these photographs for the Kitchen Table series. This piece right now, I'm, I'm really happy to say, again, you know, the, 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 because the piece is bigger than I, that has another kind of life of its own that people need to negotiate, that the audience needs to, go to negotiate, that the viewer needs to negotiate, is right now in this month's Vogue, the one with Serena Williams on the cover, and it's an article about black women identity and makeup and they're using this image. They didn't ask me. <laughs> they did not ask me, Sarah. Do I have legal grounds? I mean, Vogue has a lot of money and I need some. <laughs> and girlfriends. Girlfriends, boyfriends, people that I met on the street. You know, I, would, I, you know, I met the, the, the little girl that I met. I have to just tell you quickly about her. Uh, I've been working with young people for a long, for a long time, and uh, I, I, I knew, I knew, I knew that I wanted a young girl to be working with me. And uh, yeah, you know, again, this is primarily, you know, Northampton is not, a, you know, a deeply brown city. So, you know, trying to find, you know, a young girl that I could work with was, you know, I was just thinking about it a lot. And, and then one day, I saw this little girl on her bike chasing a boy with a stick. <laughs> and I said, there she is. That's my girl. And she walked into my house, right? And I didn't even have to direct her. I mean, just street smart, just smart, right? It was like, we're going to sit at this table, and this is what we're going to do. She's fabulous, really fabulous. And of course, it's been many, many, many years. This was made so long ago, and I don't know where she is, but I can only pray that, uh, that she's, I, of course, she has a, a few photographs because I gave them many years ago, but I only hope that she knows uh, what an impact uh, she's made on, uh, on uh, thousands of children. Through her, through her participation with me. And so I've been really grateful to my friends to, to come along, to stand with me, to sit with me in making these various projects. Projects about the body again, projects about culpability again, again are reoccurring themes. Seduced by one another, yet bound by certain social conventions. 
You framed the likes of me and I framed you, but we were both framed by modernism. Right? That's sort of critical. And even though we knew better, we continued that time-honored tradition of the artist and his model. How are we culpable in what happens to us? Right? How do we claim responsibility for how we participate in our own denigration? We have to be aware of that, and I'm endlessly thinking about that. How do I participate, and how do I stand up for myself? And when I don't stand up for myself, why? Am I in control of the situation? Is it possible for me to stand up for myself? Is it possible for me to stand up for myself, and I don't, right? You know, what are the factors that are at stake? And that's one, again, the questions that we're asking so many of the young men and women that have been abused, that it's coming out suddenly over the waves. Getting out of the way of the work, getting out of the way of the work, getting out of the way of the work, and the work will tell you what it needs to be. Working with Robert Cole Scott and thinking about my relationship with painting, the history of painting was really important. And then it led me also to doing more work that I had not planned to do, but it was an opening. Standing on shaky ground, I posed myself for a critical study, but was no longer certain of the questions to be asked. It was clear I was not Monet's type, and Picasso, who had a way with women who I love, only used me. And Duchamp, who I deeply admire, never even considered me. But it could have been worse. Imagine my fate had de Kooning gotten hold of me. <laughs> you just keep bending, you just keep bending, you just keep bending, you just keep bending. <clears throat> I'm going to show you this one piece, and then we're going to jump to uh, look at a, a short video that I've made because we don't have uh, uh, much time today. Sometimes I get lucky, and um, uh, and an organization or a museum may commission me to do work. Uh, and uh, sometime around 1993 or four, four, something like that, Weston Neff, who was at the uh, the Getty invited me, uh, commissioned me to do an exhibition in response to an exhibition that they were designing called Hidden Witness, composed of daguerreotypes that had been collected by Jackie Wilson of African-American subjects, daguerreotypes of African-American subjects that the Getty was really hoping to acquire, asked me to do this response exhibition, which was extraordinary and enormous, and the repercussions of doing this work has been profound and really important in any number of organizations publications, et cetera, have written about it. Lawyers have written about it. Historical Historians have written about it. Copyright specialists have written about it. It's been a really interesting piece, and right now I'm just gonna take you through it. From here I saw what happened and I cried. You became a scientific profile, a Negroid type, an anthropological debate, and a photographic subject. It's like the perfect four. You became mammy, mama, mother, and then, yes, confidant, ha. The sending the throne, 
you became foot soldier and cook. You became house, yard, field, kitchen. You became Uncle Tom, John, and Clemens, Jim. Drivers, writers, and men of letters. For your names, you took hope and humble. Black and tan, your wind of change howled low, blowing itself smack in the middle of Ellington's orchestra. Billy heard it too and cried, strange fruit, tears. But your resistance was found in the food you placed on the master's table. Ha. Born with a veil, you became root worker, juju mama, voodoo queen, hoodoo doctor. Some said you were the spitting image of evil. You became playmate to the patriarch. and its daughter. You became an accomplice. And the music for God Bless the Child. You became the Joker's joke and anything but what you were, ha. Some laughed long and hard and loud. And others said, well, the only thing a nigga can do for me is to shine my shoes. And you became boots and spades and coons. And restless after the longest winter, you marched and marched and marched. And in your sing-song prayer, you asked, well, didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? And it was like one of those pieces that, you know, like I could have stopped with the first four. You know, and, and, and there's, there's all of this like sort of, sort of compression of language, right? Really compression of language, compressions of history. You know, my sense is that, well, you know, the audience has to bring its understanding. It has to bring its knowledge too, right? That there's information that's there. Now, how do you start to sort of unpack that? for yourself because there's a responsibility, a reciprocal responsibility that we have you know, to one another to make the kind of work that we make. 
you know, sort of fascinations with architecture, with slavery. You know, how do I come back to these sort of materials again and again and again to sort of explore them, to undermine them, to reveal and to pay attention to them? Right? The idea is that you know, architecture is feminine and architecture is masculine, is encoded in buildings, encoded on skin, whether you're looking at it in Africa or in the United States or in Europe or in South America. Spaces tell you. You walk by a building and you know whether or not you can easily go into that space or not. It's encoded on the building. It's inscribed on the building. And these pieces simply just tell, tell, tell us that in this really profound way, right? I mean, this is a woman's body. This is female space. This is a male body. This is male space. We know that. The building tells us. All we have to do is read, right? That's our responsibility is to read. And spending time in Europe, being able to really spend time with architecture was absolutely important to me. These ideas about the power of architecture, the power of architecture, and how the subject is made to feel in relationship to that architecture in relationship to the state, right, to their buildings. And just as I was sort of working and thinking about this and really doing a lot of work around these ideas of sort of the skin of a building and what they told us about who belonged there, who belonged inside, who belonged outside, it occurred to me that I could also be doing work around museums, right? If there's this sort of fundamental work that's going around museums that we really have to understand the role of museums contemporarily, how they play contemporarily, who's in them contemporarily, who's not in them, Right? Right? And that becomes really important. And certainly as the country becomes more and more brown in the next years, right, as we become like a, a, a nation primarily of brown people, major institutions are going to have to redirect the ways in which they're dealing with, with us. And I think then that we are sort of at this sort of a pinnacle, you know, this amazing moment. Um, that gives us sort of extraordinary possibility to really begin to think about the role of museum, how museums participate, again, in what's in them, what they collect, how they collect, and what they represent. That's not to say that, you know, that, that the only thing that they need to represent is brown people, because that would be fairly boring. But they certainly have to have a kind of balance that has not historically been there. So what I'm going to do now, I'm not going to show you any more slides. We're going to quickly shift to, uh, Frank, can you hear me? Good. Can we go to People for a Darker Hue? It's about seven minutes long, and then we'll, we'll go out. This work uh, started because of uh, this work that I've been seriously thinking about around the sort of ways in which I believe uh, uh, young men have been treated in the last, uh, for a long time, but in particular now. You know, the country, the country as it is, as it is constituted, that it's constituted really, really at this moment, that it came out of extraordinary, this extraordinary series of assassinations. We, we think of the, the, the third world countries, Chile, Colombia, you know, Italy, right? you know, these places where corruption happens. 
You know, um, I've started working on this project. It's a, it's a performance project. It's called Grace Notes. And I started working on it um, a, while, a while ago, trying to really sort of figure out a, a couple of things. And a lot of, a lot of the things that happen to me, you know, especially as I get older, um, a lot of things that happen to me really happen when I'm really relaxed and or I'm dreaming. And uh, um, while working on Grace Notes, I realized a couple of things. One was that I was really dealing with the story of Antigone, the great story of Antigone. I think that, of it, you know, that there are only a few stories in the world. And Antigone, this one great story is one, a battle between brothers. Antigone was one, and so working on Grace Notes, I realized that I was dealing with this ancient story that had its power to sort of reach across time, to inform us in another way, to inform us contemporarily, and to underscore the meaning in our lives now contemporarily. And the other thing is this, that I have to share with you. Um, one night I went to bed, trying to answer some questions for myself, and I, I hadn't been able to answer them. I was a little upset, and I went to bed. And in the middle of the night, I had this extraordinary dream where there was this massive, this wall of water that was coming. Like this, like this sort of thing that threatened to just wipe us out. And I saw this wall of water coming, and I wanted to just inform my friends. I wanted to live. I wanted to get away from it as quickly as possible. I wanted to run as fast as I could, and I wanted to take some of my friends with me. But I saw this wall, and then I looked to my right, and I saw Trump. <laughs> In my dream, I was so shaken. And I ran, and I ran, and I ran, and I ran, and I ran towards this site. And when I got to this site, there was Martin Purrier's ladder that I just talked to you about earlier. There was Martin Purrier's ladder sort of jetting into the sky, and all of my friends and my family, they were climbing it. And they were climbing it, and as they were climbing it, they were singing, we are climbing Jacob's ladder. And not as a, as a hymn, but as a, as a protest song in this really powerful way. We are climbing Jacob's ladder. We are climbing Jacob's ladder. Shook me out of my seat. Out of my sleep, I ran out of my house, I ran out into my yard, I ran out onto my porch, and I just sat there and cried. And so I feel a great tsunami coming. And I know that in part, the way in which we came to this moment, in this country where we are questioning in a way something that we thought was way over. They were questioning that now. It has a great deal to do with all of the assassinations that have happened in this country as people march towards social justice. 
whether it was Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Megger Evers, JFK, or his brother, Robert, or the young people that died at Kent State, they were all gone because they were pushing towards progress. And there have always been a group of people that are desperately trying to hold on to traditions that they believe give them a right. So a few minutes of this and we'll close the day. Can we start, please? They were no strangers to sorrow. And time and time again, the man was rejected and the woman was denied. A man was killed. The body lay in the open, uncovered and exposed. Women wailed and men moaned. For reasons unknown, I saw him running. I saw him stop. I saw him turn with raised hands. I heard a shot. I saw him fall. For reasons unknown, I rejected my own knowledge, my own eyes. And I deceived myself by believing that any of this was possible. And so their rights were denied. And the people said little, and they did even less. This violence was not like it was in the movies. There were no fast cuts, no zooms, no pans, no close-ups, and no fades. Reality happens in slow motion and in somber color. The man was rejected, the woman was denied, and the numbers tell the story. He was a father, a boy, a brother, an uncle. He was 22. He was 36. He was 43. He was 18. 
a boy, an uncle, a cousin, a father, a brother, he was 18, he was 22, he was 36, he was 25, he was 27, he was 18, a father, a brother, a boy, a cousin, a husband, he was 41, he was 36. She was 28. She was 34. A mother, a sister, a cousin, a wife, a friend, a girl. She was 22. She was 23. He was 29, he was 36, a husband, a cousin, an uncle, a brother, a boy. And so I ask this question, in this mystery of all mysteries, measure for measure, how do you measure a life? If the man is rejected, if the woman is denied, For reasons unknown, I saw him running. I saw him stop. I saw him turn with raised hands. I heard a shot. I saw him fall. And for reasons unknown, I rejected my own knowledge and my own eyes refusing to believe that any of this was possible. And so their rights were denied. 
And the people said little, and they did even less. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.